and good evening to all the Mets fans out there. You are listening to the 30th episode of a Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. I am hosting tonight. This is Rich Farago, known on Twitter as MetFanRich and Mets Killing Me. And we're in the full house tonight. I have my two co-conspirators with me, and we have a very special guest we're thrilled to have on the podcast. So, um, you know, it, it's a dark day for the Mets. Uh, I think we all know that. It's been a dark week. And we'll talk about all of that, including some other stuff. So we have a lot to cover. No point in uh, in a big, long introduction. So let's get going. Let me introduce the first of my two co-conspirators on the Metsian podcast, uh, Mr. Sam Maxwell. Sam, uh, we like to say that you're often on location because you're typically, you know, somewhere in the tri-state area. So what's going on tonight? I'm just leaving Morristown, New Jersey. I am currently on 287, heading towards the city as we speak, and uh, I guess the only way I can start the show is by saying, well, it's Groundhog Day again, and it's almost <laughs> becoming Groundhog Day comparing our lives as Mets fans to Groundhog Day, but I'll tell you what, if I see Ned Ryerson one more time, I'm going to punch him in the fucking face. <laughs> <laughs> way to start it, okay, you know, ding, come out of your corners and start punching. All right. Um, all right. Let me turn to my other uh, co-creator, we'll say this time, of the Metsian podcast. That's Mr. Mike LeCollin. Mike is usually in the great borough of Brooklyn. And, Mike, is that where we find you tonight? That is correct, my friend, in the safety and security of my man cave. Uh, I'm on the other side of antibiotics and medication. And like Sam, I'm motivated, man. I'm a little hot and uh, ready just to accept. Load on the on the week that was. Well, I'm going to hope that one of those medications that you're on the way off of was some kind of a mood altering thing. So I think we all need it at this point with what's going on with the Mets and and to help us talk about the New York Mets, we have a very special guest, a gentleman who has been on a podcast with us before, going back about three years ago. Uh, we have John from MetsDaddy.com. And I'll say a couple words about John, then ask him to introduce himself. So John, as I mentioned, has a website called MetsDaddy.com, which he created in June of 2015 at his wife's recommendation because she was tired of hearing him complain about Terry Collins and the Mets after each loss, and, and his wife is actually not a baseball fan. And from there, he's been fortunate enough, fortunate enough to write for Metsmerized Online, otherwise known as MMO, and he was an editor for MMN, which is MetsMiners.net. We are thrilled to have you on, John. So please tell the folks more about yourself, how you became a Mets fan, and, and how you were, uh, shall we say, uh, condemned to this life of, of Mets fandom. I only have my father to blame for this. Um, my dad was uh, actually original vendor for the um, 1964 Shea Stadium. Um, his claim to fame was he and his cousin um, both worked Father's Day. They were both under 18. They were caught selling beer, and what happened was they got it taken away, and they got to sit there and watch Jim Bunning pitch a perfect game on Father's Day. Uh, fast forward 30-something, 30-plus years, and we almost watched uh, Aaron Nola do that to the Mets today. Um I became a Mets fan. Um, he used Daryl Strawberry against me. Uh, Daryl Strawberry was the first overall pick uh, the year I was born, and he brought me to my first game, uh, game during Strawberry's first homestand. As you know, growing up through the 80s, 
really easy to become a Mets fan. Um, ever since then, not so much. Um, the fact that my oldest, who's five, is a Mets fan is a miracle. Although, to be fair, uh, he's about the luckiest Mets fan there is on the planet. Every night when he falls asleep, the Mets have something like a 5-3 to three and 4-2 lead. I'm the one who has to break it to him the next morning. The Mets bullpen sucks and blew the game again. What a wicked so. dynamic. <laughs> oh, so, uh, John, I think, you know, as your son gets older, I wish I could say it gets better. My, my daughter's a lot older than your son. I made her a Mets fan. And I think if she had the opportunity, she'd launch me into the sun at this point. But, um, <laughs> but anyway. Um, <laughs> I, tried, I, tried raising, I tried raising a Mets fan. He's 28. I had him for a little bit. I, I said this in the email. It was like uh, 2004, I believe it was. He was a he was a, a tweener, uh, and the, the Yankees were weighing heavily on him. A lot of influence from his classmates. So I say, come on, let's go to the game. They're playing the Pirates tonight. He's like, eh, I don't know. I was like, come on, they suck. We're gonna beat the crap out of them. He's like, okay, let's go. Pirates just handed our heads to us, and that was it. That was the end of his fandom uh, in Metsville. You know, that's when I lost him. It happens. Um... So, all right, so, guys, I think we have to start with the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Well, there are several 800-pound gorillas in this room, but, but let's start with this one in particular, and that would be the sweep this week at the hands of the Philadelphia Phillies, who parenthetically, going into the series, had lost seven in a row, and three of which to the lowly Miami Marlins. But our Mets go in there and get swept. I have a couple of things to brighten your evening here, and I say that sarcastically. Um, as you know, during the game, win, percent, win likelihood percentage comes out. It, you know, it fluctuates like a betting thing. So on Monday night, the highest percentage the Mets had of winning that game was 68.2%. That's where it peaked. On Tuesday night, 86.1%. On Wednesday night, 95%. And today, the winning, the winning probability peaked at 92.6%. And we all know the Mets lost each and every one of those games. So now, we know they lost because of the bullpen. Here's another fun fact for you, if you don't already know. The Mets have 20 blown saves. They're the only team in baseball with more blown saves than saves as a bullpen. The bullpen ERA since May 27th is 894 that's almost impossible, but the New York Mets have found a way to do it. So now I'm going to ask you guys to comment on I mean, today's game to me, and I've been a Mets fan since early 70s, is in the top ten worst losses uh, that I've ever seen for the regular season. It really was. That gut-wrenching, they needed to win so badly, the way it went down, all of that. I'm going to ask you guys to comment on the Phillies series when it's just completed, any, any observations you have, anything that's particularly in your craw, and just your observations over the last four days. We'll have plenty of time to get into other stuff. So, John, uh, as a courtesy to our guests, why don't you start, sir? Um, what might particularly be the bee in your bonnet about the four-game sweep at the hands of the Phillies? I don't think you could have had any series this year that perfectly encapsulated how grossly incompetent Brody Van Wagenen is. Um, put it this way, if Brody Van Wagenen took this job and tried to build the worst roster imaginable, they would be five wins better than this team. In this series, Jay Bruce, who he salary-dumped on the Mariners – 
had a essentially game clinching pinch hit home run, and then he has a game winning double off of Steven Nogasek, who or however it's pronounced. I probably should know better writing for MMN, but I'm in a bit of a rage right now. Um, how Steven Nogasek gets into a game in the tenth inning. He shouldn't be in the majors this year. This is what happens when you build a bullpen that at its best was one to two arms short. I know we had injuries. I know there's a number of other factors. The bullpen was still one to two arms short. So when Jeremy's Familia goes down, Justin Wilson, which is hysterical because Justin Wilson had one game back from a non-rehab uh, stint to come back and then all of a sudden, he has one, and he's shelved again, and they're like, oh, whenever he can pitch to this elbow pain. Um, you throw in the fact that um, Edwin Diaz gets one save opportunity in the series, blows it. Uh, Robinson Cano has two separate games going 0 for 5. Um, what uh, Wilson Ramos can't throw to second base, which is one of the things he supposedly could do. Um Throw in the fact that this is a team that, and in, in an era when balls are flying out like every stadium is Coors Field or Yankee Stadium, they have a hitting coach who's teaching to hit opposite field ground balls and drop down bunts at inopportune times. With a lineup of Conforto, Alonzo, Ramos, Cano, whoever, uh, Todd Frazier. Each of those guys should be at or above 20 homers. Alonzo's the only one. You want to pinpoint what's wrong with this team, what happened in this series? Brody Van Wagenen is in over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. And, he, and we have an owner, a COO, Jeff Wilpon, who was taking victory laps taking after taking nine years to do the right thing by Tom Seaver, who can't even enjoy it because he has dementia and he is not, and he is silent and the way he has been silent and unaccountable and not answering for anything. City field's going to go awful silent starting this weekend. John, I, I can't say much more about what you just said. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I, for therapy purposes, I put Frances on, <laughs> whom I almost never listened to on the way home, but I had to get more Mets talk. I had to hear it and get it out of my system. And Frances said it right. He, he said, this team, like to your point about Brody, it's so poorly constructed because you have too many corner players. You, it, it's just, you have too many guys playing out of position. It's just the pieces he brought in pieces but the pieces don't fit. The, he didn't. He didn't. It's like he took a piece from this puzzle, that puzzle, that puzzle, that puzzle, threw them on the table. They don't work together, and it's a very, very poorly constructed roster. There's talent there. There is. There is talent on this roster, but it doesn't work together. The pieces aren't right. So, Sam, what are? Give me your thoughts. Uh, were you driving during the debacle today? And what are your thoughts on the series? I was actually at the gym for today's debacle, so I got to listen to the whole thing. Lucky me, huh? I, the Mets too often are elixir for other teams. It, anybody who was saying that, well, at least the Phillies are struggling too, it was just set up to be a letdown. 
completely set up to be a letdown. I, I, I have not been as vocally critical of, of Brody Van Wagenen as others have been. And uh, the day that he was announced, I came across the intersection of Summer and Von Wagenen in Newark, New Jersey. And I was like, oh, it's the Great Omen. The, the, it's going to be a summer of Van Wagenen. Well, it is being a summer of Van Wagenen, but exactly like John said it's going to be. It, it has been uh, completely inept and over his head. And, you know, I, I it, it's both the same thing that I've said about Callaway. You know, it's a tough place to get, you know, your, your toe wet, if you will, in, in terms of this new world that he has found himself in. Uh, in terms of of being a general manager and with Callaway being a manager, you know, uh, it's it's not always that general managers start in the minor leagues like managers would maybe start in the minor leagues. With with uh, general managers, usually they are just climbing the ladder of the corporate baseball world. Um, but you know, he thought that he knew enough of the workings of. Major League Baseball and enough workings having dealt on the other side with it that he'd be able to, to get this done. And so far, you guys hit the nail on the head. It, it, there's a lot of talent on the roster. It's just not coming together. And, um, you know, we, we keep saying that it's glaringly the bullpen. Uh, but John's right. There's, there's a lot of place, you know, pieces out of place. Uh, and even though I don't think it's been as glaringly – uh, uh, in F like Daniel Murphy was in the outfield. You know, I actually think Don Smith's been pretty good out there. Uh, other than a ball the other night, Jeff McNeil has been pretty sound out there. Uh, but Jeff McNeil's only having to play left field because there's too many infielders, not to mention one infielder who hasn't even played uh, an inning yet, and that's Jed Lowry. So uh, it, it, it's very troubling right now. I, I don't know what they're going to do. All I can say is hopefully they can get some good talent back for Wheeler and Frazier and whoever else they think they can sell right now. I mean, I don't say, I forget how long the deal is for Wilson Ramos, but I don't think they're going to be moving that contract any time soon. So it is what it is. The Mets are elixir. Too often than not, they get people out of their slump and get teams going. Hard to argue that either. Mike, what say you? <laughs> I'd say a lot of things. Try to say them as quickly as possible. Brody is not the alpha. He's here to serve just. Uh, they had a, a friendship prior to this hiring that extends back for many years. This hiring is as inbred as any that his father made with Harrison, McIlvain, Phillips, Duquette, and Omar because Fred had relationships with them all previously to them becoming general manager. He hired people he knew. And that's exactly what Jeff did. Like father, like son, they will not go out of their comfort zone. Sandy Alderson was thrust upon them. Their search for a general manager went horrifically until Selig stepped in and offered them Alderson. 
that was a godsend for the organization. And he was charged with 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 what? Uh stabilizing the organization while ownership dealt with the Madoff implosion. Now, I understand Brody's plan when he says I want to win now and we're gonna win later. The plan was to trade highly touted lower level league prospects for major league ready talent, create depth. I understand the philosophy behind it. And in the meantime, he brought in guys like Alar Baird, you know, who would start working on the future of the Mets. So in that regard, what he said doesn't bother me per se. Uh, I, I'm still interested to see what the future holds with the front office personnel BBW has accumulated. Uh, all that said, last year on June 27th, the Mets were 32 and 46. Here we are, June 27th, 2019, and we're 37 and 45. Uh, just because uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand his plan, you know, doesn't mean that it doesn't or hasn't gone horrifically poorly, badly, whichever way you want to say it. It, it has just been God-awful. But he's here to serve serve Jeff. If they were comfortable going out of their comfort level, they would have hired Heim Bloom. They would have, you know, resorted to an old-school vet in Doug Melvin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't know how to hire GM in, in 20, uh, excuse me, 2010, and they proved beyond a shadow of doubt again they're incompetent baseball minded folk who do not know how to run an organization. And the only solution to that can't make themselves. The only solution is for them to look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm not good at this. I need to bring in the president of baseball operations. And in the absence of a president of baseball operations with full autonomy to separate ownership from every and all operations, nothing will change because Brody is serving Jeff's will. Jeff was so, Brody told Jeff, you know, told, I wasn't in the room, but essentially told him, I can give you what you want, and this is how I'm going to go about it. And it's proving woefully inefficient. I'm not touching stats, this, that, and the other just yet. Maybe we'll get into it later. The only thing I'll say, cycling back to you, Rich, 38 save opportunities, 20 blown saves, 52%. It's my only stat. Five-game losing streak, three and eight on the road trip. Next. It's bad. No, it's bad. And the the on-the-field stuff is awful. And I'm happy to get that off my chest. No, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Um, all right, l- let's segue to the off-the-field stuff. Now, last Sunday when we did the podcast, it was all breaking. The Tim Healy thing was just breaking, and we talked about it. But what we haven't talked about was the way the organization handled, or if you prefer, did not handle it. Um, l- let me throw a couple things out to get your reaction. Mickey came out. Jeff apparently called Tim Healy. Okay, fine. Mickey came out and did not apologize. He said a lot of things and never apologized. 
So what happened? About 6.15 on Monday night, less than an hour before the game, he calls a second press conference and says, oh, guys, guys, I meant to say I'm sorry. Clearly, after social media blew up and said this dude never actually apologized, the Mets got a hold of it, got word to Philly, and he had to have a second press conference, which I think is incredibly embarrassing. Vargas, to this day, hasn't apologized. And when given an opportunity last night, he said the following. He said, all the facts aren't out, but the organization has put an end to it, basically saying, I've been muted. I've been stifled. Um, so, and Vargas, you know, by saying that, he kind of stirred the pot a little bit, but he still hasn't apologized. So I'm going to start with you again, John. Um, this off-the-field stuff, and talk to me about the way it was handled or not handled, and what your reaction is to that. Um, going back to um, what we were talking about earlier with uh, Sandy Alderson, the, the, the best thing that Sandy Alderson did as general manager, aside from accumulating the talent he did via the draft <clears throat> and via trade, aside from the fact that as much as we don't love certain players, um, Mike Anthony's war, uh, Anthony Swarzak, um, who was sent to the Mariners, and I know a lot of people here don't like Todd Frazier. Uh, they were on short-term deals. You were going to be done with them soon anyway. The best thing he did was at the beginning of every homestand, he sat and he talked with the reporters. There was a face of the franchise who set the message, who kept things straight. Everything that was a crisis went through Sandy Alderson. It did not go through Kerry Collins. It did not go through the fifth starter back then, who was Bartolo Colon, who was much more of a team spokesman than Jason Vargas will ever be. This was an instance where the team had to have someone above Mickey Calloway speak. They needed to set in clear, uncertain terms what happened was unacceptable and then hand it to Callaway to then apologize. On a personal note, vis-a-vis Callaway, I don't have as big a problem with what he did as other people did. He got pissed off after a loss. He's having to sit there and answer for what we discovered are moves he's not even making. He's just there having to answer questions from people that in the room who know he's not making these decisions and he has to invent some answer out of thin air. He's frustrated. He snapped. He shouldn't have snapped, but it's not like he went and he, you know, Vargas did threaten somebody. Uh, from my personal perspective, Callaway got in a room and apologized to Tim Healy. If Tim Healy accepted Callaway's apology, that's it. That's fine. I don't care. But the fact that the Mets have not suspended Jason Vargas for threatening someone and refusing to apologize and continuing to embarrass the organization, not just embarrassing them by, by not being able to pitch five innings in half of his starts, but by embarrassing them by actually going out there and threatening a reporter. And by the way, he has to be held back by an injured Syndergaard. Could you imagine if Syndergaard is gone for 60-plus days because he had to restrain Jason Vargas? Um, Jason Vargas is not good enough, even on his best days, to be still with this team. By not forcing him to apologize, by not suspending him, 
This team is sending a message that his behavior was acceptable. It is not. It is also not acceptable how this team is now making this entire organization a shit show. You cannot have you cannot have your manager screaming and yelling at reporters. You cannot have a player threatening to to attack and and beat the crap out of a reporter. Callaway invoked Billy Martin. I think we all kind of laughed. You know what the difference between that Yankee team with Reggie Jackson and all of them and this Mets team? That team won. This team is not winning. They're an embarrassment on and off the field. And again, it goes back to the owner, Jeff Wilpon, slash COO, whatever you want to call him, and it goes to the GM, who are not as accountable and who do not set out the message for the organization. These are the things that happens. Well said. Sam, your take on the uh, the way the off-the-field incident in Chicago has been handled the last three days. I mean, yeah, we haven't really – I don't think Brody Van Wagenen has gotten front and center. Um, and it, it's just – it's yet again, like Mike was saying about this Wilfon regime, um, you know, Nelson Double Doubleday left, I believe, uh, 2002, 2003, right? So all of the string of years, 84 to 90, and 97 to 2001, you could say, where it was more than two years, have not been with the Wilpons as the sole owners of this entire thing. And the best they've ever done is 2005 to 2008, four seasons. But here we are again, and, and, and generally speaking, if you want to talk about it in playoff terms, we're talking the majority of the time they only go to the playoffs twice in a row. They have never been able to go ever three times in a row. And so here we are where I, the, the one thing I feared was that they're never going to be able to sustain any success with the Wilpons uh, still owning this team. And unfortunately it's coming to fruition. And, and, there's only so many times that you could say, uh, well, we're going we're gonna to make it right this time. We're going to do it differently. They keep trying the same thing, and it's just not working. 2015, 2016. And even then, there was plenty of drama to go around, and they had to have some spectacular stretches just to pull off a miracle yet again. We're... The, we're, we're incessantly the Miracle Mets were perpetually the Miracle Mets and having to get over only twice in a row occasionally the adversity that's thrown our way. And this is yet again just one of those moments where the Wilpons are not good leaders, or at least is not a good leader. But, but Fred is the one who has let his son run rampant and let the the uh, uh, the lion run the ringmaster, if you will. Um, the circus is is front and center, and there's nothing we can do about it. It's Groundhog Day all over again. Deja vu all over again. I need to say more. Mike, 
How did they handle this off the field thing? Ever the conspiracy theorist. John is right. The visual is awful. The example it sets is just wholly unacceptable. But for me, this all fits under the same narrative. Everything BBW does is in lieu of money. That means this ownership is still in a desperate condition. Think about it. Vargas is their second best pitcher at this moment. This circles back to the conversation of being reactive versus proactive. They're always spinning their wheels in the mud. They have no plan, you know, and when shit like this hits the fan, it's all fly by the seat of your pants. That is all. Well, and just to go back to Vargas for a second, I'm not sure if you saw this. Um, a couple hours ago, something came out that the Mets are upset with Vargas because of the way he handled the other night. He, you know, sort of opened the scab a little bit, and that he might be moved by August 1st. Now, he might be moved by August 1st for baseball reasons, you know, because they're clearly out of it. But I thought that was interesting that uh, the report, I'm not sure if you guys saw it, that they've uh, become a little bit um, upset with Vargas, and which I, th- I think they have a right to be. I mean, uh, he, he comes off looking like an idiot. You know, he, he just he refuses to apologize. He First of all, he wants to attack a reporter. Then he refuses to apologize. And then he cryptically says, well, you don't know all the facts, and, and walks away smugly. Um, so what the hell is all that about? So, okay, let's you know, get to the next topic. I, let me, and if can I can I could... interject for a second. Um, I, I could, it just brought up a thought. This is history repeating itself. Let's go sure back is. to the 1993 Mets. We had Brett Saberhagen throwing bleach on reporters, and we had Vince Coleman throwing firecrackers at fans. How is this the thing that happens under the same ownership? Nothing happened to Bobby Bonilla when he threatened Bob Klopish. I mean, think about this. From the Bronx. Does this happen to the New York Yankees? Does Does this happen to the Seattle Mariners? Why is this something that has happened repeatedly, more than one occasion, with the New York Mets organization? I will always point to the constant. Players change, coaches change, managers change, general managers change. What is the constant? Move on, Rich. Yeah, and, and Rich, before you uh, move on, I just want to say that I was thinking about, you know, I was talking about Wheeler and Frazier, but you know, outside of them being upset with him, I was thinking before even hearing the news that Vargas would be prime real estate to move if other teams want him. Now, obviously, this might scar him a little bit in trade talks, and maybe we can't get something back like you could get for Wheeler, especially considering uh, uh, the age uh, and, and, you know, comparing to Wheeler and the maturity of teams. Uh, you know, as, as, as much as Wheeler's been struggling – He's always seems like a stand-up individual who's going to take responsibility for how either good or bad he's been. And he's always talked to the press in very respectable ways, going all the way back to when he was talking about wanting to stay with this organization when potentially being traded. So um, I think for all intents and purposes, it will make a lot of baseball sense outside of them being frustrated with him to move Vargas before the deadline. And, and there, there, there's your way Anthony Kay uh, is somehow involved in this organization at some point, in, in the starting rotation at some point. You know what? They can whine about his behavior all they want and threaten to trade him. The fact of the matter is they fail to act with conviction now, in the present. Trading him does nothing. The example needed to be set, as John said, immediately in the moment. 
show conviction, show a backbone, show standards. And they can can say they're upset about this, but you know what we're not talking about when Jason Vargas is playing off like a maniac? We're not talking about the Will Ponds, we're not talking about the budget, and we're not talking about how this is uh, a complete fall apart from the 2015 Mets who came within a couple of errors from winning a World Series. I think they personally like having a distraction. <laughs> could be. No, it could be. And all right, so what's Damn it. It could be. All right, they do like the back pages, and they're on them. So um, let's move to a tangential point about this. And, and I know we talk about this a lot, but we have to, guys. We have to bring this one up again. We have to bring up Mickey Calloway and his job status. Now, I think we've all agreed that Mickey's a puppet. He's if you think if you think BVW is a puppet, Mickey's a bigger puppet. He's further down the line. We don't all know where shit flows, right? But the thing is, with the way the team is going on the field, this off the field stuff, his general way, and with this most recent sweep and all of his curious moves, do we think it's time to make the move in the manager's chair? And, and I know it, nothing will really change until the owner changes. That, 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 as they say, ain't happening in the near future. But let me tell you my perspective. I'm going to throw it around for you guys to react to. I realize it's not Mickey's fault. I do. But he's also not a leader. He's not doing the things. He's not leading on the field. He's not leading off the field. If they make a move in that manager's office, in my opinion, you could do it tonight. You could do that tonight. You can't change the bullpen tonight because you don't have the talent. You don't have the pieces to, to totally trade and, and redo the bullpen. But you can make a change, get a better and stronger leader in that manager's chair tonight. My opinion, Joe Girardi, you, you automatically would instill some professionalism the way Girardi has played this game before. It's not his first rodeo in New York with the media. I think that would go a long, long way. Maybe not to winning games right now, but to stabilizing this, to use the term that's going around, shit show of a franchise, that would be a step in the right direction. So let me go, Sam, we'll go to you first. Do you think changing the manager at this point would be entirely cosmetic, or do you think maybe it is time to shake something up, and that's the move you could make right now? Well, it's going to keep going down the line. BBW's not going anywhere. It it is his first rodeo. And I think they're going to give him the benefit of the doubt unless something drastically changes. So Mickey's most likely going to be on his way out at some point in the near future. Um, I think you're right about Joe Girardi. I know a lot of people were not always thrilled with the moves he made, but you make a lot of points about the professional and the the stability. I'll tell you one thing, just to get very, very specific, there's not going to be any managerial changes before 69 weekends. That's just not going to happen. That's too much of a distraction. They're going to let this play out a little bit. So there's some good vibes going in. And think think about this too. Like the fact today was so bittersweet, not just because of the loss, but like like we were saying, the Will Ponds were just front and center for how they should have done this when City Field opened up regarding. A 41 Seaver Way and a statue. The statue looks beautiful. I would have loved to have looked at it, at least in the bullpen plaza, like you hid the, the, the apple back in the day in 2009. But here we are 10 years uh, later again. I didn't think that anything could get worse than 2009 in my mind. And right now, they're pushing it, especially because there's a lot of 
there's there's a lot of lovable parts about this team right now, much more than anybody on 2009, as far as I can tell in my head. And they're completely and utterly throwing their opportunities out the fucking window. And, and, and this should have this should have been such an amazing, glorious day. But everything about the Wilpons is front and center when talking about changing the address to 41 Seaver Way and how much of a shit show and how far and beyond this team is from the teams that Tom Seaver played on. And it all, it, it's just, it's this lineage of shit going all the way back to the way M. Donald Grant handed, handled the transition into the modern era. And yet again, here we are not celebrating what should have been a glorious day. Well, Sam, you know, you make a great point that on the day that should have been a glorious overdue day for the franchise, they go out and they lay an absolute egg on the field in just the most horrific of ways. And I, and I never thought about the juxtaposition of those two events until you just put that out there. So, so good catch on that. Mike, would and changing the And on that point, manager... not to cut you off for a second, sure. it's sure. like Peter Alonzo breaking Daryl Strawberry's record, and we're talking that night about Mickey Calloway and Jason Vargas. So Excellent point. When there's so much shit going on, it obscures the good stuff, and you lose the good stuff. That is a great point, John. So, Mike, is changing the manager something that, in your mind, is it like it would be like throwing a deck chair off the Queen Mary, or do you think it could actually help? What a tough question, Rich. It depends who you have in-house, who you can hand the reins to. Uh, You know, I, I was quite agreeable not to say that I wanted David Johnson fired, but I was agreeable with handing the torch to Buddy Harrelson. I'm not so sure I'm as comfortable handing the reins over to Riggleman or any of our in-house candidates. So are you going to hire a transient coach manager, or are you looking for a permanent replacement? Or are you going to wait till the off-season and expand your search and do your due diligence? Uh, I don't think there's somebody available outside of Joe Girardi, who would make the impact if fans are looking for. Uh, but, you know, I have a, uh, a life saying, haste makes waste. And, and, you know, this organization has a history of doing hasty things. As far as Mickey Calloway, you know, I the man has a backbone. It's clear, but it's being suppressed. He feels muted. Uh the man knows he's a human stick pin for this organization. Uh, you know, but at the same time, he has no great fan in me. I think his glaring lack of inexperience at this role, you know, is it, it's stark. I, I can't think of another word. Uh, he And as far as his job security, I think he's so white out. He's a he, he's so white hot, he's about to burst into a star. You know, so I, I don't know what the future holds. I'm, I'm a little conflicted on uh, on the answer, Rich. Uh, I don't know what the future holds. I, I do think that he doesn't I, – I, I don't think he fits BBW's model either. And, again, we know BBW didn't hire him. And I think he's motivated to fire him, but Fred backs him. Fred is a proponent of Mickey Calloway. So there's that to contend with. And the father-son struggle that, that you know, sometimes paralyzes this organization. 
Well, I get that, and I've heard that, too, about Fred being a supporter. And, look, I, I know it's not Mickey's fault, although he does make some bonehead decisions. It's not all his fault, I should say. And I do, I do. he's a likable figure. I like him as much as you can like somebody you don't know, I mean, the way he carries himself, other than the incident in Chicago. But to me, it's like if you bring in a, somebody like a Girardi, you achieve something. You achieve that stability. You achieve professionalism. This team has neither of those right now. John, take it away. You know, I, I was going to go in a different direction uh, in this response. And then to, if, to throw it to the beginning, Sam was driving through Morristown, uh, which is home of Del Barton High School, uh, and that's where the great John C. Riley went. Um, one of John C. Riley's um, seminal characters was he was one of the Bobs in office space. And Mickey Calloway is Tom Sinkowski. He's sitting across the table from all Mets fans. And after all that was revealed by Mike Puma and everything, we just go to him now. What would you say you do here? And as he's cursing out Tim Healy, he's saying to us, but I'm a people person, damn it. And next thing we know, the Wilpons are going to run him over with a car. And he's going to be somewhere in Cleveland with Terry Francona or somewhere else telling everyone the best thing that ever happened to him was having Jeff Wilpon run him over while he's fired or he's not, the Mets burn to the ground just like in attack. And that's it. Interesting angle on that. All right, so, John, I'm going to go to you first on this next one because I know you have some thoughts on this. Um, it came out earlier this week that uh, – it was Monday night, I believe – that Brody was actually making in-game literal calls or texts you know, to the, to the clubhouse and getting word to Mickey. Now, Brody says, I've never done that. That would be against the rules. I did reach out when DeGrom was hurt because we are allowed to do that, to check on the health of the player. But I don't go beyond that. I don't tell him to sacrifice here, you know, put that guy in and that guy out. Because that's against rules. I would never do that. Um, but I think we all suspect, and, John, I think you've suspected this for a long time, that Brody is literally calling the shots, and now he's been identified as perhaps doing such. So, John, run with that one. What do you think is going on there? You know, people have accused me a lot this year of, defending Mickey Calloway and it's not so much I'm defending Mickey Calloway in as much as I'm saying it doesn't matter it really doesn't the only thing when I see a Mickey Calloway is the team does play hard and when we see a psychopath like Vargas they're actually willing to fight for him Um, which honestly is all you can ask for for a manager anymore especially when they're calling the shots Um, there was a tweet by Matt Dyad you know, the former Braves player, one of the several Met killers there had been throughout history. And one of his responses to Brody Van Wagen basically being in denial mode and playing stupid was he said, during his playing days, the general manager called down to say the center fielder was out of position. He was playing too shallow. Look, this is baseball in 2019. Um, I don't like it. I don't think anyone 
on this roundtable likes it. Um, in as much as I tend to be more of the sabermetrically major, saber driven, I do think there needs to be room for a manager to look at his team and go, you know what, I know I should be batting J.D. Davis here. He was really lethargic during batting practice. I think I need to go with Dominic Smith. Or I know that, um, you know, uh, choose a reliever. Um, Their kid was sick last night. Um, They probably don't have the same energy. I need to go with someone else. I might not have ever pushed a starter, but it's not that way anymore. We are removing the human element, and it's just taking, you know, just like, no, you're going to pitch Seth Lugo for two innings. But he threw 20 pitches in the seventh. I said to pitch him for two innings. That's the plan. We only go according to the plan. Well, you know, what you need is what Alex Cora was in Boston. You need someone who actually knows and how to handle the information and to push back and say, you need to understand the human element. So, you know what? Long story short, I do believe Mickey Calloway is calling, is getting told what to do minute by minute. Because I think that is the way, from what we're hearing from people like Matt Diaz, that's the way baseball is playing nowadays. So when you look to, say, fire Mickey Calloway or you look to chastise any decision, you really have to say, well, who's making this decision? And I think every Met fan cringes, not so much because we think it's Brody Van Wagenen. We actually think it's Jeff Wilpont, who, who may be – you know, I, I, I had a conversation with my father today as an aside. He calls me up and he says to me, you know, they traded for Cano. They had Jeff McNeil. Um, they, you know, they had, um, they had Brandon Nimmo with a hurt neck. They tried to play him. He goes, why do we root for the only team where the fans know better than the people calling the shots? And that's where we're at. Sobering thought. All right, uh, Mike, let's go to you next on this one. Do you think there's anything to it? Do you think Brody is literally doing what he's been accused of doing, which is way overstepping his boundaries? Yeah, I already gave you my opinion on BBW. I'm going to pick up exactly where John left off, and I'm going to spin it through the blender this way. Let's talk business and corporate again. You know, analytics are very corporate and if we're talking about a corporate environment when you don't know how to delegate power and run an expanded organization you fall back on micromanaging and that has nothing to do with baseball has everything to do with human nature but getting back to your question Rich again you know Brody and Jeff had a relationship previous to his employment with the Mets and previous to him being an agent and starting his own company. Uh, And, you know, as friends, Brody said, look, you know, I think I can give you what you want. You're not about spending money. I get it. I think I can pull it off to you anyway. That's where I am. That's where I am. I think they're still heavily, heavily, heavily in debt rich. 
and Howard Megdahl has got me believing now that they've only been paying down the interest. Okay? They're mid-range major league in payroll. And here we are, how many years after Madoff now? When they were routinely, you know, two, three, and four in payroll prior to Madoff. And then that whole implosion and what they had to do to rectify things. You know, and then they stooped all the way down to, what, 21st, 22nd, 27th at one point in Major League Payroll. And right now we're, you know, at par, league average. I will not be sold on the notion that Jeff puts out. We're not, or excuse me, how should I say, you know, we're just trying to spend less money more wisely. To me, that's bullshit because I think there's a major debt. And that's what the media isn't pursuing. There's got to be a reason behind all this. The Wilpons have spent money before. There's been many instances, you know, where they opened up the wallet. But that when, that's when they had made off money, and they're more dependent now upon attendance than ever before throughout their entire ownership. That's their problem. They're in debt. They're desperate, and they do stupid things because they're afraid to delegate and separate themselves from operations. And only a president will rectify that. And them looking themselves in the mirror and just having to deal with their finances on their own somewhere else. Nobody knows how to delegate and step away. And again, analytics are very corporate. And if they're implemented wrongly, they can be disastrous. There's my rant. Part two. No, very good. All right, Sam, what do you think? Do you think Brody is literally texting or calling in the shots? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I feel like, wasn't this a, a scene in Moneyball? Or uh, I, I, I feel like... When wasn't the Chicago White Sox a reality show? And uh, what's his name? Williams. Can somebody tell me his first name again? Kenny, Kenny Williams. Williams. Kenny Williams. Wasn't he like like ready to call in <laughs> to to Ozzy? Uh, wasn't that the kind of dynamic they had too? You know, it's it's like uh, it, it, it's it, 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 you're doing it. You're trying to do it as discreetly as possible. Um, and like Matt Diaz said, like it's it, it just it's just how it is. So yeah, I totally believe it, and I I really can't expand more on it than that, just because what else is there to say? I I, I don't think he's literally like calling in moment to moment, being like, "Have Zach bunt here." That that wouldn't make sense. You you know. I don't. I don't see Mickey with a Bluetooth on his head. Uh, now, now that's going to be the catch. That's going to be the next catch, like they caught with the iPad, right? Um, that would be funny. That would be very, very entertaining and, and terrible at the same time. Uh, so yeah, that's. I, I said that I wasn't going to expand on that, but I did. So I will stop now. <laughs> and it's, it's a tough topic. And and the other thing I'll add is that I, if Brody is doing, I don't think he's the only one. Um, I, I think you're, there's probably more of that going on in baseball, you know, with the analytics and all of that. Um, 
Yeah, it, it would just make sense, right? Because the manager's not sitting there with a with fan graphs open. You know, there are people who get paid to do that, and I I would not be at all surprised. Well, speaking, I mean, yeah. speak, speaking of which, speaking of uh, uh, fan graphs, does anybody want to send him the fan graphs of what Robinson Cano looks like over the last several weeks? <laughs> We're getting to him later. We're getting to, but we're going to hold that thought for just two minutes. We're going to get to Cano. That's great, Sam. We're going to get to Cano. Um, I have to go down my trusty little list here. So, guys, all right, before we get to Cano, I do want to make a comment on the bullpen. Um, And I know that's a very difficult topic for us, and and it's the reason that the 20 blown saves, and you think about if 10 of those were wins, the Mets would be right in the thick of things. But, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. But what can they possibly do? Let me ask you this question, and we'll start with you, Mike. The bullpen is, it's not bad, it's a disaster. There, there's nothing like it. I heard some quotes from the Philly broadcasters. They were saying things like, you know, the Mets bullpen saved the Philly season. I mean, it's true. 8-9-4 ERA, almost a 9 ERA in the last calendar month, May 27th to today. Almost a 9 ERA. How do you even do that? Edwin Diaz has a 6 ERA over his last, I think, 11 appearances. It's um, and I, I realize those are small samples because he pitches, you know, a small amount of innings. But he's not what we thought the Mets were getting when they got him. Uh, Seth Lugo, the most reliable piece, does not do the job the other night. And then you have these guys like like Negosik, who, like John said, shouldn't be in the major leagues. You have Gaselman, who's up and down. So my question to you on the bullpen is: Is there anything that could be done? You think to salvage it? Or do you think they're going to have to just ride this thing out till the end of the year and think about entirely redoing it yet one more time? So, Sam, let's start with you on the bullpen. That's, it's a great question because I've wondered, like, at some point, are one of these kids going to stick? You know, and to that, to the, the credit of uh, Chris Flexen, I believe is his name, it's just the, all of these guys blend together sometimes. It, it might be Jeremy Flexen, but that That's probably sounds like his brother. Yeah, exactly. I knew it wasn't Jeremy, but I, I felt like throwing the complete opposite name out there. Um, but, you know, other than that first home run, he's actually started to settle into what they were hoping that he could be, which which is, uh, uh, you know, let it all hang out inning to inning instead of, uh, uh, you know, over the course of six or seven innings and struggling over the course of that. Of the, um so, I, you know, I, I think there might be still some answers. I mean, you can't keep throwing, uh, you know, uh, gas onto the fire. 817 is just unfathomable. It, it, it's looking – I saw it on Twitter right now. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. And that's bullpen since May 27th, 2-10, 817 ERA, 329 opponents average, nine blown saves. And obviously, we're just settling into a new pitching coach, but uh, it, it, it didn't it, – everything went exactly the way it wasn't according to plan this week. And at some point, it, it just – it doesn't matter whether you're completely out of it. You have to figure something out one way or the other uh, because otherwise you're go- like, – like last year, they were going to end up with 100 losses had they had not, something not changed. Uh, and I think it was just the, the, the way the offense ended up clicking in the second half, uh, m- mostly. And obviously the bullpen tightened up a little bit as well. Um, but you're going to wind up with another overall 93. And the Mets haven't lost 100 games since then. Uh, 
you know, I, I think it's one of those things where they, they've constantly kind of kept hope alive, but unfortunately it, it, it never works out. They haven't even lost 90 games until I think 2017. Um, so I, I, part of me is always like, let it burn to the ground. And, uh, you know, at, at the same time, I don't know whether we can fathom that happening this year. So they got to do something. What can they do? I, I, I just, I guess what they keep trying to do, which is keep trying new, new pieces. Now pounders got pounded the other day, looked good today again. So that's a good story. And, and, and for a hot second, it looked like his appearance was going to really matter. And unfortunately, and I guess we got to get to Diaz because I'm, I am still, I know Diaz hasn't worked out. And every time people, people are, are, are so part of the outrage culture that they really want to, you know, throw gas onto the fire regarding this trade. But I'm still, I think that, you know, Edwin Diaz, because of that rain delay theater, uh, just got completely dicked around the other day. And now he's worse than ever after that, that entire debacle. He was not performing properly before that, but then they kept having him up and down, and then they pitched him in the pouring rain, and then he pitched him in the 10th inning the next day, which I disagreed with, even though some people gave me some shit about it. I think that Diaz, Diaz is, it's one of those things where his stuff is too good to, to continue like this. And, I, I think they mess with his head. I really do. And this organization messes with some of these players' heads. I don't know what's going on because he has some of the filthiest stuff I may have ever seen. So they got to figure that out because as bad as this bullpen is, we didn't see this coming. Uh, you know, some people didn't think maybe he should have signed Familia, but overall it shouldn't be this bad. Nobody could have predicted it was going to be this bad. Obviously, Brody Von Wagenen didn't want it to be this bad. None of us wanted it to be this bad. But as Mike John said, you could do, you could try to throw the worst team together, and they'd still be five games better. Probably, uh, Mike, run with the bullpen. Is there anything that could be done to salvage this? Well, it depends. Who hit, what, what's the guy's name who hit the game-winning home run? Cigar. Today, Segura. Yeah, Segura. Okay. <clears throat> today, I'll today. Up, I'll pick up where Sam left off. That pitch was bearing in on him. That was a good pitch. He opened up. He got his hands out in front and hooked it. Good job by him. It was a good pitch. Okay, now. Uh, you know, Rich, there's something to be said for injuries. Let's, you know, let's be, I, I guess, what, somewhat empathetic to, to the situation. Avalon Wilson, Oswald just made a rehab appearance for Brooklyn. Uh, look, I, I think they're up, up to, like, 23 people in the bullpen they've gone through thus far. The only thing you can do is add. You know, they've gone through everyone they can, they can within the organization. Uh, you know, adding people. And I don't mean Chris Mazza. No, if you're going to add, you have to add. And that means going off campus. And you know what that involves, Rich. Uh, so you have to be, A, motivated to do that, willing to do that, and confident enough to do that as an organization. But first, the guys 
in house right now at this very moment need to improve the situation well enough to even give the Mets a reason to be buyers by the deadline. That's my answer. No, that's improved very quickly. So, John, as I go to you and ask you about the bullpen, I'm going to throw a theory I have at you about Edwin Diaz, and, and please comment on it, and then other guys, you know, if you'd like to do as well. Remember when the Mets got Diaz? He has a bone spur, but doesn't bother him. No problem. No, nothing to see here. Bone spur doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm great. I'm good. Well, let's think about that for a minute. He, he still throws hard. He hit triple digits last night. He still 96, 97, 98 consistently. What I've seen is it's his slider does not seem to be as effective. When you could throw 100 miles an hour and you have a good slider, that's why you're a wipeout closer. They, they have to gear up for the fastball. You throw them the slider at 92 like Noah does when Noah's on. They freaking can't hit it. His slider hasn't been that effective. When you have a bone spur and you're having to snap your elbow at that high rate of torque, maybe that bone spur is bothering him a little bit. That's a theory I've had for a long time now. So, John, if you want to comment on that and the bullpen in general. On this topic, I don't know if you should even let me speak because I don't know if you've been on Twitter today. I wrote a piece when the Mets signed Justin Wilson that the Mets had the makings of the best bullpen in baseball. Um, If you want to talk about an all-time bad take, I think that's it. (laughs) Um, But uh, since the topic's my way, um, it's interesting you bring up Justin Wilson and the slider. Um, The bone spur is not something I personally contemplated. Um, What I go back to on the slider and even a touch to uh, Wheeler's struggles – with his um, splitter uh, slash change up, whatever you want to call it, which was really the big difference maker for him last year. Um, if you go back when Noah Syndergaard was struggling, he was describing this new ball as a cue ball. Um, there was a recent article um, by an astrophysicist. Uh, I wish I, I think her name is Meredith Willis, and I, I apologize to her if. Um, if the name's wrong. Um, but it does seem pitchers who utilize a slider or a similar grip or throwing motion, um, these are the pitchers who have really struggled with the new ball. Um, when you are a Jacob deGrom and you can go, well, I have a really good curveball too, um, or you are um, Noah Syndergaard who who I don't think is getting enough credit for really pivoting from being uh, just a slider-dominant pitcher to really developing his other pitches to being what I believe now is 20th in the league in FIP. Um, So what happens is you're Edwin Diaz. What else do you have to throw besides your fastball and your slider? If you don't have a slider, you're Armando Benitez, which – by the way, on that topic, do you remember? Do you want to know the last time the Mets, any major league team, blew five straight games where they had a two-plus run lead? It was 2001. Mets closer Armando Benitez. Um, so, so, and I have to give Mike Mayer of MMO credit for that one. Um, I think this may just be a slider issue. So what the Mets need to do is they need to go into their minor league system. And they need to find guys who have good curveballs 
or who have good fastballs. For example, let's go to Eric Hanhold. The guy is having an atrocious year in AAA. Maybe give him a call up. He's on the he's on the forty man roster anyway. Uh, Steve Villanus. This is a guy who was having a dominating year in Binghamton. He's always been a low walk guy, um, funky delivery, uh, delivery a little bit reminiscent of a tra- Chad Bradford. Maybe give him a call up. Give him a certain look. Um, and I'm going to throw a name out here that's going to drive people nuts, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'd call up a Paul Seawald, and I'll tell you why. This is the disease the Mets have. You go back to Hansel Robles, uh, I believe it was June of last year, almost a year to the date. They designated him for assignment to get Chris Beck, who was terrible his whole career. Um, Paul Seawald is not a good reliever. I am not going to make that claim. But you know what Paul Seawald is? He is a guy who comes into a game when you're down 10, when you're down 5, you're starting to pitch your last two innings. And he's a guy who's going to give you innings. So when you bring a Paul Seawald in, or it doesn't have to be Seawald, it can be someone else like a Corey Oswalt when he comes off the DL or something. But they need a guy who can come in and he can absorb the body blows for when they have that, when they were getting the shit knocked out of them by the Phillies after they blew the lead, I believe, and that was Matt's start. They need a guy who can come in and take the body blows. So then you can say, all right, Robert Gazelman, Seth Lugo, you can now pitch fully fresh because we didn't have to use you for two innings in a meaningless game. Time and again, the Mets waste the opportunity to get a guy in there whose sole purpose is to absorb body blows and to go deep into games. Think of some of the best Mets bullpens they have had in their history. I go back to 1999. I think of Pat Mahomes. I think of 2006. I think of Darren Oliver. To a much, much, much lesser extent, I think of 2015, and I think of Sean Gilmartin. You need a guy in there who can take a punch for your bullpen. So a Turk Wendell, a Steph Lugo, somebody is fresh for another point. Because now what we're doing is we're pitching Robert Gesellman, who is great to start the year. Then he pitches something crazy like 50 times in two days. Steph Lugo has been pitching way too much of recent. He was pitching at an all-star level. Now he's pitching like Gesellman was the other day. They need someone in there who can take a punch and 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 just allow these guys the rest they need to be the effective relievers they are. The Mets have been way too short-sighted in terms of chasing games they had no business chasing and using pitchers like Lugo and Gesellman for multiple innings because they don't have anyone else who can give them multiple innings. When you do this, and plus, by the way, when you carry dead weight on your roster like Jacob Rain who's terrible. I know he's on the IL in the minors, but who cares? He shouldn't be all, he shouldn't be taking space up anyway. You need to you need to first go through find a guy like a villainous who has a funky delivery you go, well at least this guy's got a funky delivery and he can throw a strike. He's like what you wanted Steven Nagostek to be, except he throws a strike and he's not going to set up a game-winning double for Jay Bruce without recording an out. 
that's what they need to be doing. They need to be finding like these quirky guys like a villainess, call them up. They need to be taking guys like a Seth Luger or someone like him who could take a body. I'm, Drew, uh, Drew Gagne did that effectively. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, go pitch the eighth inning. Well, Drew Gagne is never going to pitch the eighth inning successfully. He's only going to be good in the fifth or sixth. That's the thing. Find guys who have roles and stick them in the roles in which they are successful. Just because someone pitches good in the fourth inning does not mean they can close a game. When you combine the fact that they're, yes, they're a little snake bit on the slider, you make a good point on the bone spur. Uh, there's the issue with the ball. But when you put these guys, it's like putting Jeff McNeil in right field and Dominic Smith in, in left field. Put people in a position to succeed, and there was talent here on this roster for people to succeed if they were in the role that they were given. They don't do that. They, they overthink things. They panic. It's the same thing over and over again. Look at Hansel Robles. He was a guy effective in 2015, effective in spurts. They would, they would go, oh, great, he had three straight outings. Let's pitch him seven days in a row. Oh, my God, he has a 70 RA. Hansel Robles stinks. He goes to the Angels. The guy's opening, he's closing, but he's pitching on a regular basis. He's not being abused, and he's being effective. The Mets need to find that line between, one, people in their proper roles, pitching when they can pitch and not when they think they can pitch because they pitch once well in the second inning of a game where Steven Matz got knocked out. Two, they need to go through and they need to find what is succeeding in the majors this year, which is guys with the curveball, which is guys with a funky delivery. And, by the way, people who throw strikes. And three, just let people have an opportunity to take a breath. You do that, maybe the maybe the bullpen's ERA is 4.5. It's not good, but you know what it's not? It's not what it is now. That improvement to 4.5 from where they're now, we're basically cutting the ERA, you know, in, by about a third, right, if not even a little bit more than that. And what a difference it would have made. You probably put five or six more wins in your win column just with that. So, guys, let's play a little game as we get, you know, uh, you're listening to the 30th episode of the Mets, Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike and our special guest, John, Mets Daddy. Um, and I want to have a little fun with you guys here. So I'm going to ask you to give me one of your best pitching pro- prospects and to give me one of your best position player prospects. And I want you to take back a guy – who is 36 years old and will be owed $25 million a year for the next five years. And, and this guy is going to produce this at the midway point, a 223 batting average with four home runs and 17 RBIs. When it comes to some of the advanced statistics, his OPS is 631, his WRC plus is 70. And if I didn't say it before clearly enough, you have this guy, not only now, you have this guy for four and a half more years, and you owe him $25 million a year, and he costs you two of your best prospects, in addition to the closure you got with him, but he costs you two of your best prospects in the deal. So, obviously, we're talking about Robinson Cano, and we need to take a look at this. We need to take a look at Robinson Cano, and what in the world, I have two questions for you guys. I know, John, you said you had a theory, so I'm going to go to you first. What in the world is going on with this guy? 
why he he performed half a season off the PEDs last year. Why is he falling off the table like this? If you have a theory, share it with me. And what are we looking at? Four and a half more years of Robinson Cano in Flushing. I don't see a way around it, but that's what I want to know from you: is is what can we possibly do about this? Why is he the way he is, and what can be done to either make Cano better? or to try to get him out of here because it's just not working. So, John, why don't we start with you? Okay. This is uh, – let's put aside for the minute he hurt his leg on May 11th. Um, and I say put that aside because let's be honest here. Was he good before May 11th? I don't think anyone here is making that argument. So, I went back, and I looked at him coming back at the PED uh, when he came back from the PED. And let's just let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the PEDs were out of the system. I don't know if we can safely make that argument or not, but let's just make that argument. Here's what I noticed. Robinson Cano was not playing second base every day. Robinson Cano was playing some first base, and he's playing some DH. Um, we forget he's a 36-year-old second baseman. Um, and I, I thought back, and I thought back to Jose Valentin in 2006. He was really good. Mets brought him back, and he wasn't as good the next year because he was injury prone. I think one of the biggest mistakes the Mets made in acquiring Robinson Cano was keeping him at second base. I, I know the Mariners had other reasons for doing that. Um, one of the ways being Gordon, which I think they probably wanted to showcase him to send him out knowing that they were tearing it down in the off season. Um, I don't think at his age he can be an everyday second baseman. I think one of two things has to happen if you want to get him back to being some reasonable facsimile of Robinson Cano. The first is they were playing him every day. You cannot play a 36-year-old every day. You're going to get diminishing returns. I think the second thing is, I think second base is a much more demanding physical position than we probably realize. There's a reason why players who are older move away from the middle of the diamond. It's why when when the Mets signed Curtis Granderson, he was a right fielder. Um, it's a reason why, as Jubal Cabrera, this offseason, where does he sign? Third base. The Marlins and Yankees signed Neil Walker in successive offseasons. He's not at second base anymore either. I think going for look, the die is cast for this season. It is what it is. But if I'm the New York Mets, and I have Robinson Cano on the hook, for, at that point, what, four years, 80 more million. And I have Todd Frazier coming off the books. I have a Jeff McNeil. Um, Jed Lowry might as well be the tooth fairy at this point because he's a figment of everybody's imagination. Um, I take Robinson Cano, and I make him my everyday third baseman. He has a really strong arm. He doesn't have the range he has anymore. It is a much less physically demanding position. I find him rest, you know, assuming that Jed Lowry actually exists. 
um, next year. I don't think there's anything we the Mets can do for Robinson Cano this year, short of putting him back on the DL and go look, this ain't working. You're you're still clearly not that healthy. Um, go get the rest you need. Um, don't hurt yourself anymore. This contract is an albatross. We can't afford it to be more. Get him off second base. Get him to third. And see if that keeps him healthier and it keeps him a little fresher and so his legs are a little bit more underneath him when he's at the plate. That's the best-case scenario. Um, it's also very possible he's washed, that this was all PEDs, the PEDs are now out of his system, and he's never going to hit again. I mean, how many how many older Mets second basemen do we have to go through in their history? Wants them well. You know, uh, uh, Roberto Alomar. But I don't want to make those lazy comparisons because Robinson Cano is not those players. Um, No, I think this is an issue of – I think they were very short-sighted, surprise, surprise. Um, They weren't attuned to the needs – the physical needs of a player vis-a-vis rest and injury, surprise, surprise. And I think they, at this point in his career, they had him playing out of position. Again, what a shock. So the Mets need to get him off second base. Maybe then he starts hitting again. Maybe he doesn't. But you know what? I I think we need to see Jeff McNeil at second base because that's probably his best home right now, especially with a Dominic Smith showing maybe possibly he can be a left fielder. And in the future, you, you hopefully have to find a position for Brandon Nimmo again. So that was my, you know, quick crackpot theory. Well, there's something to that, because if you think about the interview that Brody did with Mike Francesa right before Christmas, he talked about the need to have Cano stay fresh by giving him, finding him lots of time off. I think he used a number 120, about 120 games. Well, Cano is, he basically plays, he almost plays every day. And when he does play, to your point, he's playing a very demanding position in the middle infield. So I, I think there might be something to that, putting him at a less physically demanding position, because as you said, last year he did DH, he did play some first base, you know, to take a little bit of stress off his legs, keep his legs a little bit fresher. And then, of course, there's a PD angle that we have no way of knowing what that was. So, Mike, let's go to you next on Mr. Cano. Um what do you think is going on, and what can the Mets do about it? What's going on? Not sure. I do know overplaying overplaying him again points to desperation on their part. Uh, John, I think that's a great idea. Uh, third base is still a transient position, so why not move him there? That said, I would also ask him to lose some bulk, you know, very, very plainly. Lose weight, lose some of that bulk. And, you know, uh, get a little lighter on your feet and increase your flexibility. And let's see if we can lengthen his use, his usefulness. That's all I can add. Uh, you know, so both of them have to meet in the middle as to how they're going to manage these next bunch of years at that, at that money. Because, quite frankly, uh, we, we knew it watching him locally with the Yankees. You know, so his act is no surprise. Act, well, his perceived lack of hustle and all that, however which way fans to describe it. Uh, so I, 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 
Rich, I I mean that in all sincerity. I would ask him to, you know, lose some bulk and lose some weight, and, and you know, regain some elasticity in his in his joints and whatnot. And uh, third base is a great idea. It, it would uh, solidify it for at least the near future. It is a transient position and has been a transient position. So if we can scratch one off the list, I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, no, there, there's some sense to it, especially. And it's not even about Cano, partially about Cano, but also the fact that you get McNeil to where he should be, which is second base. So there, there's a lot of benefit to that. Sam, what say you about Cano? I think that's a great idea. And, you know, I, I do believe that Todd Frazier is going to be moved if this team keeps going the way it goes. I really do. And just to change it very briefly, I, I do appreciate that Todd Frazier has started to hit. He did go through a little bit of a stretch during this series before the home run in the ninth inning. Uh, but Todd Frazier is, is a fun player to be rooting for when he's uh, very sound. And I think, like I've been saying, that uh, if this team keeps going the way it's going, he could prove maybe, you know, since he's an expiring contract, maybe not a crazy amount, but they can keep filling the minor leagues back up and replenishing it after some of the trades this, this offseason. And it would take care of what you're talking about. And J.D. Davis would be interchanged out. Uh, for the lefties, as we we have seen. Um, he's also been playing the outfield. Everybody's moving all over the place, of course. Um, I, I, it's just, and, and I wonder with the fact that they've been batting him third, whether the idea is giving him that, that uh, protection in the lineup. But if you're going to give him that protection, give it a little bit farther down, you guys. I mean, Conforto should be batting third as consistently as possible. I know that he doesn't have the average really high up there right now, but he's been hitting pretty soundly, especially of late. Uh, and uh, Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, they're fantastic at the top of the lineup. I know you generally want your power hitter a little lower, but, but Pete Alonzo can do it all right now uh, in my eyes. Um, it was a little bit of uh, weird that there was a little bit of a power outage with Pete Alonzo with, Silly, but maybe that's the point. He kept uh, uh, hitting it to third base, I, I noticed. And maybe that was because he was trying to shoot it out because it was such a band box. Maybe that, that there was something to that. But I keep tangenting on, on it. Uh, um, I think you can't be playing him as often as you've been playing him. Bottom line is that Brody Von Wagenen said that we think he's going to be best doing 130 games, but Robinson Cano wants to play every day. Uh, but he's 36 years old, like we keep saying. You've got to get him some proper rest, and the lineup is good enough, especially considering that he has not been performing, uh, to account for Robinson Cano right now. So, um, it, 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 you know, when Conforto, when Nimmo, when all different types of players have not been uh, hitting well, they've moved them down in the order to try to work it out. And you can probably still be able to put in protection by putting them in, like, the seventh spot, the sixth spot even. But you can't be batting him third right now. It's just the bottom line. It's just egregious. As you see him go 0 for 5, he's a rally killer. Crazy, crazy rally killer every single time, it seems. Uh, so I like the direction that this conversation went, uh, and we'll see if, if there is something more to that. Maybe one of them's listening right now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, all right, so so let's move. I think we've covered the Mets. We covered the disaster in Philly. You know, we talked about Brody. We talked about Mickey. talked about um, the unfortunate incident with Tim Healy. So let, let's move to a social media topic. Um, 
let's face it, we've all encountered each other through blogging. Blogging leads to Twitter. Twitter leads to conversations during the game. And and I especially want to go to John here because um, w- one of the very common people on Twitter, Rich Catino, uh, has left MMO, Metsmerized Online, and John, I know you, you've written for them. And in the process of doing so, there's been some, um, I don't know how to put it, some, some maybe some bad blood on the way out the door, a lot of, twi- twi- uh, a lot of tweets going around that um, Met- MMO wasn't the best place and, and that kind of thing. And it's kind of, to me, it, it doesn't, you don't come off well when you do that. You know, when you walk out, you say, well, I'm leaving on my own accord, and by the way, they stink. And, um, and so the reason I'm bringing this up is for two reasons. Number one, it's a big Twitter story, and let's face it, like I said, we're all – into social media, and we have John here who could comment um, as a former MMO person. So, John, I want to start with you. Uh, if you could share any thoughts you have on that situation. Before I speak, I want to preface it this way. Um, I did not speak to Joe D or anyone internally as to why he was let go. Um, I could ask and I could find out, um, honestly. Um, but I respect the people on the site too much to ever question their decision-making. And besides that, it's not my blog. I don't run it. I, you know, I don't, I don't care as long as they're happy with me. Um, as an aside, I've been writing for MMO since January 2016. I have had, on a personal level, I have had Articles passed over. Um, I've had, I've seen similar articles, which, and again, this is partially my ego speaking, and I think everybody has feels they do a better job than most people. I've seen other articles on topics I've written, published over my own, um, and and other issues. Each and every time, I had an issue where. I thought it merited mentioning. I have personally gone directly to Joe D. Every single time, he, he has treated me like a professional. I have not always liked his answers. And I've told him as such. <laughs> you know, but he doesn't fly off the handle at you. You know, you have to, on a person-to-person level, you have to do something over the top. For Jody to be, listen, I don't need you anymore. Okay, so I, I'm just speaking from my personal experience. Um, I find Jody to be reasonable. He sticks up for his writers, and he is—he's he, just a good person. Um, on the topic of Rich specifically, I'll say this. Um, when Rich when Rich took to Twitter to first announce his decision, um, I personally wrote a note, um, something, and somebody can pull up the tweet, something akin to "Best of luck to you." And if you go through all the responses to him to the first tweet, um, I can think of Tim Ryder, who's just another outstanding human being who works for that site. I cannot tell you enough what a good person Tim Ryder is. Person after person, 
wished Rich well. Nobody likes to see anyone go. I mean, yeah, we would love to see Jeff Wilpon go, but I'm talking on a, you know, on a person-to-person level. Nobody likes to see someone have to go. So what bothered me on a personal level is Rich went, and instead of letting bygones be bygones, he decided to punch down. And let's call it what it is. He insulted writers like myself, basically calling us, for lack of a better term, I I mean, read between the lines. He called us a bunch of keyboard warriors blogging from our mother's basement. And he's the tough guy who's standing in the locker room. Okay, great. You're you're in the locker room. Um, you 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 get to ask questions of of people. There's value to it. Um, I don't, you know, good. That that's what you do. You know, good for you. That's why you initially came to MMO. You provided a value to the blog. Um, but you know, on a person to person level, and I mean person to person, um. Since he joined MMO, I have been ex- personally extremely supportive of Rich. Um, I have always alerted him of troll accounts, both people who trolled him. And I know when he used different accounts to further a point, and I would send him a polite message saying, Rich, that's not really who you think it is. Um I I sent him personal notes about, you know, his personal life, wishing him well in different fashions. Um, I've always treated Rich well because I I thought he was a nice guy. Um, And I just wish he took a different path. Um, I don't think he needed to insult. I mean, and look, Say what you will. I mean, say what you will. I think everyone on this round table, um, we're motivated because we love the Mets. And I think we would all rather be talking about Pete Alonso sending home run records. Uh, we'd love to talk about how Jacob deGrom pulled things uh, together, made himself back to what should be an all-star. And, oh, my God, let's watch the second half because he can win a second consecutive Cy Young and be the first ever Met to do that. But like everything else, we're focusing on the negative. Um, He wound up in the long term blocking me, which I found bizarre. Um, But it is what it is. He took his path. Um, He decided to go back to New York Sports Day. Um, because apparently they're a better outlet. Put aside the fact that when he had a choice between that site and MMO, he went to MMO, whatever. Um, I wish him well. Um, he can, he, he'll do what he does. He's had some level of success doing it. I'm not going to sit here and demean what he does or his job. I'm just going to say I wish he handled it better. And um, at certain point, I hope he comes to the realization he insulted a lot of good people who had nothing but kind things to say to and about him. And um, I do hope at some point he, 
I don't care about myself, but um, I hope for some of the other writers and editors, he, he does find a way to apologize for his behavior towards them. And that that's where I'm at with Rich and the situation. Fair enough. All right, so we don't know Rich, um, and no, none of the three of us have written for MMO, but Mike and Sam, I'll go to you, Mike, first on this. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on this situation in particular, or I'm going to broaden it for you and Sam and say, you know, some of the the nastiness that we know goes on on Twitter. So what are any comments on that, Mike? We'll start with you. With regards to Rich Pitino, I don't know. If you follow his tweets, if you're familiar with his timeline, and, you know, I, I don't know him personally outside of, you know, what I can gather on Twitter. So is what I think being an objective observer, you know, he sees the nuts through orange-colored glasses. Otherwise, he's ultra-positive about life in general. So that's why his uh, lashing out found that very odd. Uh, I sense major frustration on his part. I will only say, Rich, that I hope somebody very close to him is aware of it and that he's surrounded by people who love him. Uh, Sometimes when people act out of character, perhaps it's best to be surrounded by people who know you best and perhaps can, you know, mellow you out of a rather uncomfortable situation. To me, that it appeared like a, a, a lashing out, a release, a rant, so to say. Uh, but he definitely wanted to make his point very well known. Which, again, to me, as only someone who knows him through what he says on Twitter, which doesn't say a whole lot, just seems out of character. Well, I'm not going to add much more. What 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 do I know? Uh, I'm not PhD in anything except bullshit. So, you know, let's move on. Fair enough, Sam. I know you had a few thoughts on this. Why don't you share your thoughts? Uh. You know, Rich is usually a very optimistic fellow, and he likes boasting about his optimism. And so you'd think that would be the direction he went. But, but like Mike said, you know, it, it sometimes people act out of character, and Rich seems to have done so in, in this particular accord. So uh, it, it, it's unfortunate because he he seems to want to block out a lot of the negativity that can get stirred up on Twitter and he kind of just played right into it. And I, you know, we all can get into it uh, a lot. We all make our mistakes for, for certain, but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm somebody who as often as possible, I, I tend to not go for like the worst human being alive, you know, type talk when it comes to, to regarding some of these, these sports, Stuff. And I, I, he did, didn't necessarily do that. I didn't exactly see what the direct quotes were uh, on his way out. I just kept seeing the topic come up in my timeline uh, of basically every every so often as I was scrolling through it. And 
uh, you know, I just, I, I think that hopefully he can keep staying optimistic because that's something I've always liked about Rich was that he always thought that this team was a few games from turning the, uh, you know, from turning it around and, and I wish him nothing but the best. And, you know, hopefully he quite possibly apologizes, unlike some other people we know. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk of apologies on this podcast. <laughs> it seems to be the theme of the night. <laughs> so, um, so, all right, you're listening to the Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike, and we are basically entering the ninth inning of our podcast. We have two more things to do. Um, one of the things we like to do is talk about Mets who wore the uniform number of corresponding to the podcast number. So because this is podcast number 30 for us, let, let's talk about some Mets who wore number 30. And what we'd like to do here is go around and, you know, if you have anything to say about any of these guys or a few of them, that would be – this would be your opportunity to do that. So as I look at Mets who have worn number 30, I'm seeing names that go, uh, you know, a little bit past all of our time. Uh, well, Nolan Ryan, you know, wore number 30 for a while, Bob Miller – Hank Webb, I, his name came up when, when we had Greg Prince on on, on Sunday night. Uh, Mike Scott, you know, a lot of us like to forget that Mike was actually a Met because he almost ruined the Met season in 86, but Mike Scott wore number 30. Um, Alberto Castillo wore number 30 in, in the mid to late 90s. Um, so who else? Jorge Toca, Cliff Floyd um, certainly is a name that uh, is near and dear to all of our hearts because he was an instrumental part of that 2016 uh, let's see, Josh Tolley, uh, long-standing catcher, like to catch R.A. Dickey, who seems to be R.A. Dickey's personal catcher. And then, of course, current-day Michael Conforto, um, just some of the names who have worn number 30. So I will start, and well, let's see, Mike, we'll go to you next um, on this one. So I'm just going to make a comment on one person. I, I want to make a comment on Alberto Castillo because he was involved in one of the most interesting things. In 1998, on opening day, uh, it was March 31st, I believe, and it was ridiculously hot. It was hotter than today. It was like, you know, low 90s and humid. Went to the game. Cold front went through during the game. And by the end of the game, it was probably 65 degrees and windy, like a 30-degree 30, 30 drop. But what's most important about that game is they played the Phillies. Game ended in the 14th inning, bottom of the 14th, when Alberto Castillo drew a bases-loaded walk to win opening day for the Mets. So I'll never forget Alberto Castillo for that reason. So, Mike, of the Mets who have worn number 30, who might you want to talk about a bit? Rich, do you remember Mike Scott versus Fernando Valenzuela, a one nothing loss to the Dodgers? I do remember that. I do. Awesome game. Awesome game when he was a youngster before he uh, slipped through our fingers, I guess. I don't know. Turned into a good pitcher. Uh, got accused of scuffing the ball in 1986. I think it's a great story. Uh, Cliff Floyd has... I loved him then. He's grown... He's continued to grow on me ever since. Uh, he is easily... I can't list how many, because I'm still not sure, but he's easily one of my most favorite Mets of all time. Cliff Floyd. Uh, congratulations, man. That's not a hard list to crack. Or it is a hard list to crack. Excuse me. Uh, otherwise, you know, Mike Torres, uh, I, I laughed at the trajectory of his career. I remember seeing him in 77 with the Yankees winning world championship, and then I remember watching him pitch against the Yankees while with the Red Sox in 78, the Bucky Dent game, 
and then finding up with the Mets, and you know, in, in the early to mid eighties, uh, and you know, for you know, what was still a bad team in '83, an underrated team, but nevertheless a bad team in '83. So uh, that's it. All right, Sam. Any of these guys jump off the the page at you that you'd like to make a comment on? I keep hearing Hank's web come up from time to time, and and here he is. Uh, it doesn't seem like he was thirty all that long, but uh, I just it, it, he just he's he's a name in Mets history. I don't I don't remember uh, exactly why, but uh, uh, what were some of the memories of Hank Webb are? But I, I just know that he was the first one to jump off. I, I, I think maybe even Greg uh, of Faith and Fear and Flushing, who we just had on the podcast recently. Um, had mentioned him on, on another podcast, uh, the, the Bedford and Sullivan podcast that we talked about today, and I can't really even remember the context. But anyway, uh, definitely Nolan Ryan. I think that when you're looking down the list, even though he obviously uh, was a little bit of a wild man when he was on the Mets, uh, he still is a 1969er, and he won't be joining us this weekend, but he certainly takes the, uh, the number 30, I would say, for the list. Cliff Floyd, I absolutely love Cliff Floyd. He was one of my favorite Mets, uh, especially when I, you know, flipping over in 2005. I immediately, uh, I'd always liked him, even when he was in Montreal, and I really appreciated that he came on board in 2003. Uh, but I was even more appreciative once I became a full, uh, a full Mets fan. Uh, Josh Tolley, you know, I, I remember turning the corner after an Ike Davis event, and I had uh, uh, I had asked Justin Turner if I could tag along with him because I didn't want to go home for the night. And we turned the corner, and in front of uh, Lee Bryce's touring bus is Josh Tolley smoking a stogie. And uh, that's what I remember about Josh Tolley. That was some fun times. And uh, Michael Conforto, hopefully when it's all said and done, we're talking about Michael Conforto's name on that wall out there. So uh, Mel Stoudemire... You know, he he is a world champion with the New York Mets uh, as a pitching coach. you got to uh, give it to him, the late Mel Stottlemyre. Uh Mike Scott, of course, was, you know, made his name as the scuffling uh, nemesis of the New York Mets in 1986, but was a New York Mets uh, between 79 and 82, or at least with number three, 30. I, I forget exactly how that all went down, but um, – and what 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 can't you say about Jorge Coca, guys? Uh, no, seriously, I don't remember that name. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Maybe you guys can bring that uh, to my attention. Who the hell is Jorge Coca? Back to you guys. Oh wait, David David Ardsma. That, that's all. Well, a lot of jokes about David Ardsma because he looked like remember he looked like he was a bit older. He <laughs> looked like one of the coaches. Um, right. So, but but about Jorge Coca. Jorge Coca was a very built up prospect. Um, he was going to be the next big power hitter, the next big first baseman power hitter. Obviously, he never panned out. But, um, yeah, so there, that's Jorge Toca. So, John, who jumps out to you who has worn number 30 for the New York Mets? You know, I think 30 is a really good number for what's going on right now. Um, the first one that always comes to mind is Cliff Floyd. And my, I guess, my least favorite Cliff Floyd moment uh, no offense to him, was uh, I had field-level seats in right field for that game seven. 
And when he was announced as a pinch hitter, I remember ripping off my David Wright jersey to display my Cliff Floyd jersey underneath. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and the rest is, as we'll say, history. Um, I thought of Nolan Ryan because I was thinking of short-sighted trades to bring in a former all-star talent much like how the Mets traded Justin Dunn and Jared Kalenic to bring in a Robinson Cano and an Enwin Diaz. Um, and then I thought of, and this will sound bizarre, I thought of Aaron Seeley, uh, 2000, of the 2007 Mets bullpen infamy. And it just seems like Aaron Seeley is like that guy and it's what the Mets do all the time they don't sign they don't look out there and go who's going to be the next guy who's the guy we sign and we go and everyone turns to us and go oh my god how did you sign Daniel Murphy where did you find Justin Turner it's like no you signed Aaron Seeley because he was a Cy Young contender six or seven years ago stuck him in the bullpen and went, but Aaron, but Hector Santiago, oh, I'm sorry, Aaron Steely uh, was a former all-star. Um, and that's, that was in 2007 under Omar Minaya. Um, but now we're back, you know, now we're doing the same things. But at least now the number 30 we have, Michael Conforto, is a guy we can watch and root for. But, yeah, Aaron Steely kind of, you know, right now for me is here's a guy, he's a name. Let's stick him in the bullpen and watch our bullpen implode behind a bunch of names instead of finding the guys who were going to be this year's version of um you know, pick pick someone out there, um, Sung Wong Ha oh, like uh for the Blue Jays and Rockies last year. Aaron Seeley. Remember he had, yeah, he had such a, he had such a nice start to his career. And the Mets typically, like, you know, you said, the Mets picked him up later on. And, um, yeah, part of that 2007 bullpen. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Cliff Floyd, game seven in 06, which is, you know, something we like to talk about in hush tones, of course, as Mets fans. But um, I remember when Cliff Floyd was sent up to pinch hit in that situation, I was incredulous because he couldn't move. He could, he could barely walk to the plate. And my only thought was, my God, he's going to hit the ball on the ground. It's going to be a triple play, and the game's going to end. And I was actually, quite frankly, I was somewhat relieved when he struck out because I just saw him hitting the ball on the ground because he literally could not move. And and I was very concerned about a triple play. So it's interesting how we all have our memories of that. So, all right, gentlemen, it has been a fun time talking Mets baseball. We are down to the very end. And what we do as we end our podcast is we go around and we say, what is your last word? So it could be one word. It could be a short phrase. So tell us what your, uh, your parting thought for the night is and why that's your parting thought. So, um, so let's start with one of the, uh, the more veteran people on the podcast. Let's go to you, Sam. What would be your last word for tonight? Tell the team. Just <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, we're all prideful, uh, and you want to do 
it right. You want to pass it down to somebody brought it up that Jeff Wilpon has a son. Let that sink in. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be the optimist here. Maybe he's sick of all this shit too. So, you know, Jeff and Fred apparently butt heads. Maybe Jeff's son is going to change things. But it's probably the only thing we can hope for because they don't seem anywhere near wanting to sell this team. And they sold little pieces of it, 25% here and there uh, around. But that's not going to change the fact that he's the COO. Um, And it just seems like he really wants to, to be an executive with this whole thing. And he fancies himself running this organization properly. But all you hear, and you hear about it from past employees, as my friend once was, who uh, told me after he got fired that they had promised 10% raises but then cut everybody, uh, like 2013 or 2014, something like that. You know, and and he, it, 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 it's kind of like, you know, I love two boots, but it was just like working for your favorite sports organization. You're going to get distant. You're going to get disenchanted. And it's unfortunately, it's just this never ending cycle. It's groundhog day all over again. And I don't see it ending. And I think there were some quotes out there of this ilk amongst some ESPN guys today that this is not going to change until the Wilpons are no longer the owners of this team. Be careful what you wish for, because the next ownership might not do it right either, but it's worth a shot to see if we can get a Magic Johnson group in here, because they have done some wonders. As as much as they keep losing the World Series, I I, I mean, I don't know whether I'd want to be the Buffalo Bills of the World Series, but right now I'd rather be given the shot to try to win this year, which the Dodgers are obviously going to do. And it's the only thing it seems that seems to be stopping us from doing that of getting anything consistent going are the Wilfons. Sell the team. There you go. Um, and by the way, the, there have been quite a few writers who have been pointing to the Wilfons in the past few days. I know Jeff Passan has, Rosenthal has, I believe David Lennon has, so at least word is starting to get out there that, as Mike likes to say, you have to point to the constant. So with that said, John, what might be your last word or phrase for the evening? It, uh, Van Wagenen's tomb. Buddy Van Wagenen was, was handed a team with a young core under costum, a young core under team control for about two to three years. He had talent on the way in the form of an Anthony Tay, a David Peterson, and a Justin Dunn, who are going to come up and replace a Zach Wheeler and replace other pieces that we were going to lose in free agency to allow them to sign. And he's going to get be allowed to do it because they had payroll flexibility. Um, by year 20, if he did nothing, the Mets would have had five to six top 100 prospects. 
Jared Hellenic has gone from drafted to a year later a top 25 prospect in the game who would have, who God knows when he would have made it to the majors. And they had payroll flexibility. As I wrote on my blog, that's all gone. The Mets have Robinson Cano on the books for nearly $100 million. Jeff Wilpon has been quoted as saying, that's $30 million in salary. I, I, you know, I, I don't think anyone's shocked that he can't do that. Um, things are going to get real bad real soon. Not only did we lose out on seeing exactly what Justin Dunn could have been. Could he have been the top of the rotation starter? Is he a dominant bullpen arm like Edwin Diaz? Is Jared Hellenic the best player who's ever been drafted, position player, by this organization? Not only do we lose that, but because of what he's done, we may soon begin losing Michael Concordo, Noah Syndergaard, even Seth Lugo. One of the best stories there is in baseball, a guy who was like a 30-something round draft pick or something, who has just been one of the best relievers in baseball the last two years. We're actually going to lose guys who are fun to root for and are likable and are cheap because Van Wagenen completely screwed this up. Well, maybe with Jeff Wilpon, but you know what? Next two to three years, City Field is going to be as desolate as you have ever seen it, and it's because of this past off season. Sobering thoughts. Mike, your last word. Clueless, Rich. Clueless. I don't know what to say, really. Uh, you can't spell ponderous with, without pawn, P-O-N. So here we are. We got King Pawn and Son of Pawn. Uh, I don't know where we go from here. Uh, um, I'm clueless. June 27th. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I just don't know, Rich. All right. Well, as we wrap up the 30th edition of the Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike, I'd like to thank our guest tonight, John from Mets Daddy. John, uh, before we go, please let people know one more time where they could find your work and find you on Twitter. Okay. Um, you can find me at, at Mets Daddy. 2013. Apparently, Mets Daddy 1 through 2012 were taken, so I was stuck with 2013. Um, my um, my website is metsdaddy.com. You can also find my work on Metsmarized online and metsmarized.net. Um, uh, I should also throw out there um, Mark Healy, who's great, allows me occasionally to write for Gotham Baseball, and Bree Sousa also allows me to write for that next check, so I would be remiss to not include them in the final um, plug, if you will. So thank you to all those writers, all those sites who allow me to write for them, and especially thank you to the three of you for having me on. This is honestly, I probably shouldn't say that because MMO has their own um, podcast, but this has always been uh, my favorite to listen to, and it's, it's an honor to be on this one for a second time. Thank you very much. 
And we'll have you back, John. It's been our pleasure. It's been a fantastic podcast. I love talking baseball with you and, of course, with Sam and Mike as well. So, um, all right. Well, that will wrap up the 30th edition of the Metzian Podcast. And, Sam, I'll go to you and say, although we're all a bit angry tonight, what is the only way we could end this podcast? Sell the team. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. I'm waiting for it at City Field, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Let's go Mets. We still love them. Take care now. Bye now. Take care. Thank you. Bye.